My name is Burton Lee. I'm a uh, pulmonary critical care doctor, uh, and since 2010, I've had the privilege of being in Kajabi, uh, which has an intensive care unit uh, in, in the country of Kenya. Uh, there are a number of familiar faces here. I know many have, many have uh, been to, to Kajabi, uh, and hopefully that picture looks familiar to some of you. Um, and uh, how many of you are like missionaries who see patients overseas uh, where critical care is something that you would ordinarily, you know, you know, see in the context of your medical care? Don't it, it would be nice, but we're not there yet. Oh, we're not there yet. Okay. Uh, I don't necessarily mean have an ICU, but just, uh, but you'd be seeing critical care patients, care. yeah. So, and, and, and so that's what I want to distinguish is that, you know, intensive care unit is sometimes called the expensive care unit in, in the U.S. because it's, we're talking about a lot of technology. That's not what we're talking about here, but no matter where you go, even in sub-Saharan Africa, even though we may not have the same kind of equipment that we have in the U.S., there's plenty of people who are critically ill, who are sick. So, I mean, you know, obviously things like sepsis and trauma is very, very common. So we're talking about critical care, not necessarily uh, intensive care. Um, and um, how many of you guys are excited about medical missions? Yeah? Can I get a raise of hands here? So everybody, okay? How many of you guys are excited about critical care? Okay, so most of you. How many of you are excited about evidence-based medicine? <laughs> so I suspect uh, all of you are lying about at least one of those items, okay? <laughs> I don't know which one, but I, I could guess, okay? Well, uh, what we're going to talk about this morning is sort of the combination of missions, uh, critical care, and uh, evidence-based medicine, which is a strange combination. And hopefully at the end of the session, I have to convince you why evidence-based medicine is relevant for critical care and medical missions or just uh, 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 even missions in general. Um, so this is Kajabi Hospital. The, what I hope to do this morning is to briefly go over uh, these three things, and then hopefully there will be some time for questions. Uh, one is I just wanted, uh, want to briefly describe the, uh, the Kajabi ICU uh, and then uh, talk about, uh, in a nutshell, a brief overview of the principles of evidence-based medicine and then and then describe to you how uh, uh, that's being applied in some settings uh, at Kajabi. Uh, and then most of what I hope to do is maybe have some time to dialogue with you about some of the lessons uh, learned and challenges that we face at Kajabi. And I think there are other folks who may have things to add as well. Uh, so this is Kajabi ICU. That's Dr. Lesford back there. Uh, in there, and this is uh, Sherry Lesford uh, on the front. And uh, actually, Dr. Lesford was instrumental in starting uh, the intensive care unit in 2006. Uh, I think it looks quite a bit messier than that now because this was in 2006 when it first started. Uh, but it's a small ICU with five beds, one respiratory isolation room. And, and actually, much under Dr. Lesford's leadership, we now have uh, a 12 step-down beds uh, on, the, uh, on the medicine wards as well. So we have essentially 17 beds that we can take care of the sicker uh, subset of the patients, but five ICU uh, patients. So we see a lot of trauma, and we see a lot of infectious disease. So here's a young woman who's 27 She's HIV positive, and she's coming in in shock. She's hypotensive. She's febrile. And you can see from her x-ray, her lungs are filled with something other than air, and she's having a tough time breathing. Um, and 
Um, and with resuscitation, uh, antimicrobial therapy, uh, in this case, we didn't have to intubate her, so we used a non-invasive ventilator. Uh, and, then, uh, and then we applied uh, bedside ultrasound echocardiography. And with vasoactive support, she actually improved to the other x-ray that you see to your right. Uh, so, um, so our uh, mortality is roughly twice that of what I would say in a tertiary care center in the U.S. So uh, I used to be the ICU director at a hospital in, in Washington, D.C. So if I compare the two, I think for surgical patients and medical patients, our mortality is much higher. Okay, so we're not able to provide the same level of care uh, uh, that we do in the U.S. or in other developed uh, countries. But on the other hand, I'm pretty sure that many of these people that we uh, do have who, who survive would not have survived without, uh, without all these services. Uh, what we have uh, is we have a lot of stuff. Uh, we have uh, various ventilators that you see up there. We have a Siemens 900C, which is this ventilator that I've never seen before until I got to Kajabi. Uh, and, and, and it's still mystifying me as to what it really does. Uh, and uh, I had to actually download a manual in German initially and had to figure out what those words mean. Uh, and then we have a step on uh, HF300, which we use for our neonatal and pediatric patients. We have some machines that are coming. So there's a whole list of things that are potentially coming to upgrade some of this equipment. But as you know, it's a big challenge to, to have the money and the resources to get that. Uh, we try not to put in central lines. Okay, uh, because it's expensive. I think the cost is, I think Dr. Lexford is an expert on all the costs, but it might be like 30 or $40, which is roughly what it costs in the U.S., but if the average person makes $2 a day, even the central line can be uh, very, very expensive. So we try not to do a lot of things. Um, we have a CT scanner, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work, right? Um, and we have uh, certain vasoactive medicines like dopamine and dobutamine. And for the, our uh, neurosurgery patients, we have hypertonic saline and mannitol and so forth. We don't have a lot of other things. So we obviously don't have uh, things like uh, pacing, you know, balloon pumps. We don't really thrombolyze anybody. We don't have dialysis. There's some basic labs like an arterial blood gas uh, that we don't have yet. And it's, it's on the verge of coming and disappearing. We're not quite sure. Uh, but um, it's quite challenging for an ICU specialist to try to manage patients without a blood gas. But that's what we do. Uh, one thing good about not having a blood gas is I can always feel like I'm right because nobody can prove <laughs> me wrong. Right? So, uh, so there are advantages, but it, it is frustrating. And, and we don't monitor anything like CVPs. We don't use swans, et cetera, for those of you who are familiar with all that. So um, ICU team, it's, uh, it's a teaching hospital, so it's, it's, it's very similar to the setup uh, you know, that you might be already familiar with. Uh, we have somebody that's called a consultant, which, we, uh, which in, in our terminology is equivalent to attending. Dr. Lesford is one of those attendings uh, in the uh, ICU. And there's four of us. We have a one Kenyan internist. And then we have a family medicine doctor, Dr. Scott Myrie, uh, uh, and then Dr. Lesford. Uh, and myself, and then we have other people who come for a uh, short uh, period of time to, who fill in. And then we got a whole bunch of people who are um, uh, uh, trainees, uh, various residents uh, at the hospital, as well as visiting residents from the U.S. and, uh, and other places. Uh, we uh, also have a mid-level person, either a clinical officer or, or a medical officer who helps out in the ICU as well. And then we have a very important set of people, which are, you know, of course, the nurses and the physical therapists. Uh, Sherry is a, is a uh, physical therapist there. 
and we have nutritionists and chaplains who will come in uh, and pray for the patients and, and pray for all of us as well. Um, so um, I, I want to transition into just a few basic principles of evidence-based medicine, which I think is really important for you to understand what we're trying to do. And um, it's obviously not possible to describe all of that, so I'm, I'm going to leave out a lot of technical stuff, but hopefully give you an overview and hopefully convince you as to why you should uh, think about evidence-based medicine if you're going to be a missionary. So um, I don't know if anybody recognizes that painting. Uh, this is a classic uh, picture from, I think, from Florence by uh, uh, Raphael. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, so this is actually a painting of Plato's Academy in Athens. Okay? And it's, uh, it's part of the burgeoning, uh, you know, the Renaissance movement that was happening. And, 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 uh, and, and the story is that on the door into Plato's Academy, there was a sign that said that let no one ignorant of mathematics enter here. Okay? So that would be a very daunting message probably for many of us here. But um, I honestly feel that uh, let no one ignorant of, of EBM should enter the mission field. Now, that's a pretty radical statement. I actually thought about making it a title, but I, su- I, I suspected nobody would come, so, <laughs> so I didn't do that. Okay? But actually, uh, I also used to be in, in, uh, in charge of, of our uh, pulmonary critical care fellowship program in, in Washington, D.C., and actually this was our literal policy. Uh, no one graduates from our fellowship until you really understood evidence-based medicine, what's a good study, what's a bad study. And the way they graduate is they sit down with me and they have to explain to me all of these different concepts, what's a Kaplan-Meier curve, you know, what's a T-test, and uh, you know, what's a good study design. And, and then until they can teach me those principles, they don't graduate. So it's amazing if you put that kind of motivation, how people learn the material. <laughs> and honestly, I think this is a very important goal uh, for missionaries. So why is it important? Well, I think as you know, there are, there, are, there are different kinds of studies out there. And as you know, these are... Uh, Some are better evidence than others. So at the bottom, we have things like expert opinions and case reports, case control studies, and so forth. And at the top of this chain is the concept of randomized controlled trials. But not every randomized uh, controlled trial is a good study. So we ask questions like, is this a valid study? And here is a a list that we teach our our students and, and, and residents uh, and fellows to be able to recognize, and I'm sure it, it, looks, it should look f- fairly familiar to you as well. So we ask to uh, make sure that you understand why a study needs to be registered and what allocation concealment is and so forth. And that is all to establish, is this study really valid? Is this something that we should be doing in the U.S., but also is this something that we should be doing in Africa? Um, and so we have a nice little acronym called RAMBO LAMPS, and, uh, and the RAMBO is, again, the registration, A is allocation, and so forth. So uh, we won't go into the details of that, but the idea is that there's a list of criteria that you should understand as to what makes it a good study or a bad study. So here's an example. Uh, uh, it doesn't really matter what the, what the medical topic is, actually, but if you look, uh, these are studies that are considered to have uh, inadequate methodologic criteria. Okay? And they show this kind of an effect. But if you look at the better studies, okay, that is the methodological criteria is adequate, then they show a very different effect. And in fact, when you finally do a mega trial of 2,300 patients, this is what's in agreement is with the better quality studies. 
Okay? So if you don't understand what's a good study, what's a, what's a bad study, you're going to be misled. And the cost could be, obviously, human lives or suffering or a lot of costs. Okay? And in the mission field, there isn't a lot of money to waste. Okay? So, so that's why you should understand what a good study is and what a bad study is. The uh, next principle is to, is to simply ask, is it important? Just because a study is valid, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's important. Um, and so one very simple concept that I think many of you are familiar with is the concept of number needed to treat, okay? And that is a very simple equation. I often joke that even a surgeon can understand this, which is <laughs> one over the absolute risk reduction, okay? What does that mean? So if you have a study that has a control mortality of 50%, and then you give a drug and the mortality is 40%, and this is a valid study, let's assume, okay? Then, then if you look at it, there's an absolute difference of 10%, 50% versus 40. And the relative risk reduction here is 20%. That's because at the baseline rate of 50, the difference is 10%. So 10% divided by 50 is 20%. But a more relevant concept for us is the concept of number needed to treat, which is simply 1 over the absolute risk reduction. That is 1 over 0.1 here, and that gives you a number of 10 why is that useful? Well, one way it's, it's useful is that you can ask a simple question, which is, will this drug, even though it's published in, in the New England Journal of Medicine, is this really helpful to most people? So if you have an NNT of 10, is it helpful to most people? Some of you are saying, yeah? How many people is it helpful for? One out of 10. So how many people is it not helpful for? Nine. Okay, so that's the concept that has profound implications for whether you want to do this or not. Okay? And so the other concept is uh, it's not helpful or numbers unnecessarily treated or NUT or NUT, uh, which is nine. Okay? And, and if this drug costs $10, how much money do you need to spend to save a life here? Okay? It's $10 per drug and NNT is 10. So you need to spend $100 to save a life. Okay? But if you take a different scenario where it's 5%, 4% instead of 50 and 40, again, a valid study. Uh, the numbers look very different. The NNT becomes 100, and now you need to spend $1,000 to save money. So you can think about, yeah, should I be doing this or should I not be doing this? Okay? So here's a sample of different things that might be relevant in an, in an intensive care unit. So here is the study uh, results from the, from the ACID uh, uh, study looking at the role of TPA for myocardial infarction. And the relative risks look all similar. They're about 20% or so. But if you plug in the NNTs, these are the values that you get. Okay? So if you compare these two, they have essentially comparable NNTs, about 40. Right? But how much does TPA cost? Okay? It costs about $2,500 every time you use it. How much does aspirin cost? Okay? It's like pennies, right? So if you think about dollars you need to treat... So you might think about using a, a drug like aspirin, okay? But maybe think twice about using something like TPA. Now, you guys already intuitively know that, of course, okay? But this is a way to think about more complex topics and things that are less apparent, okay? Um, what about if you have somebody on a ventilator? One, one thing that, that suggests that reduces mortality is to use a lower tidal volume. So if you have one person who's on a ventilator, another person who's on a ventilator, but, but on one, one person, you reduce the tidal volume. It suggests that one out of 11 people will have a mortality reduction. Is that important? 
Yeah? It, it's actually more important than TPA is for MI because it's a lower NNT. Okay? How much does it cost to set your ventilator setting to a lower number versus a higher number? Okay? There's really a negligible difference. Okay? You might have to minor some consequences, so it's not free of risk, but it's fairly inexpensive that you can consider even in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay? It doesn't cost a whole lot of money to set the dial in a different place. Okay? Uh, in contrast, by the way, not, I'm not knocking this, but just to, just to put it in perspective, this is the uh, number needed to treat to save a life with a mammogram. Okay? It's still important, okay? but uh, it, it has very different implications for what you should apply in the emission field. Okay? So um, other more sophisticated things which we're not going to talk about, obviously you need to think about side effects, the cost of dollar needed to treat, uh, and then a, a much more sophisticated way to look at this is quality adjusted uh, life years or qualities. Okay, so what's better than randomized control, uh, trials? Well, what's better is two randomized controlled trials that says the same thing. So in other words, what you want is a systematic review that looks at all the evidence, puts it all together, and saying, you know what, there's five randomized trials that says this works. That's probably better evidence when there's only one. Okay? So that, that's the basic idea. So finally, what you, what you should be able to do is to look at a study and say, yep, is this valid, yes or no? And is it important? Is this a clinically meaningful difference? Is it cost-effective? And is the evidence strong? Is, it, is, it, is, is there multiple lines of evidence that really helps you? Okay? So if those concepts make sense, um, here's a brief uh, reason why, why you need to go through this exercise. Here's a study by McKibben. Uh, this is a humongous study where they looked at uh, 60,000 articles. In, uh, and this is every single clinical article that was published in the year 2000 in all of the medical literature. And this team of, of investigators read every bit of this. Okay? It's an ambitious study. I personally would not want to be part of this research team because it's a, they read everything. Okay? And they asked, okay, how many of these 60,000 articles are actually valid? So the same questions that I, I just went over with you. And they went through it, and they found what? What do you think? Half? 90%? 95%? 20%? They found 4,000, okay? Which is uh, less than 10%, okay? So if you, if you are just simply doing something because you think it's published, uh, then you're going to be wrong more than 90% of the time, okay? Well, you're going to say, well, well, you know what? That's a lot of junk articles, right? But what if you look at the major journals? Here's New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, and Lancet. And these are the passage rates, according to them, 4 or 5%. Okay? So this is why you need to understand this before you either waste lives or waste money. Okay? Um, and uh, anybody know what NNR is, by the way? Number needed to read. This is how many articles you need to read in the New England Journal before you find <laughs> one valid study. Okay? And this is why you need to understand this. Yeah. Why would this be What's that? Why would this be That's not a question I can answer here. <laughs> okay? But this is, this is reality. Okay? This is reality. And this is actually, by the way, what, uh, this is not something that, 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 that um, not a lot of physicians actually understand. Yeah. How... how uh, uh, how problematic uh, this kind of issue is. Yeah? So um, if, if I look at my subspecialty journals of uh, American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, Chest and Critical Care Medicine, which is considered sort of the leading subspecialty journals, the, there was one article the entire year that was thought to be valid and clinically relevant. Okay? That is, you had to read 
the entire year's worth of articles from all three journals to find one valid one. Okay? So that's why you need to understand it. Okay? The last concept I want to go over quickly is the idea of cost-benefit analysis because this is the stuff that you need to think about. So, so let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Let's say there's a standard treatment that you're currently doing at your mission hospital and the cost is $10 a person and effectiveness is that it cures 50% of the people, so 100 out of 200, for example. Okay? So this is where you are and on this axis, here's more benefit, here's less benefit, here's more cost, less cost. Okay? So let's say you are thinking about implementing something in your hospital, okay? And it's in this black box over here. That is, it costs more, and, but you get less benefit. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, I want to make sure you guys are awake, okay? Yeah, that's not such a good thing, right? So you would, and so your decision would be, there's no way I'm going to use this, right? Pretty simple, okay? What if you're on this box? That is, you get more benefit and cost is less. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Would you do it? Okay, so that's, that's again, fairly easy. And the difficulty is in the other boxes. So, for example, if you're here, that means you actually get less benefit, but, it, but it's cheaper. So then you have to, you know, think more carefully about this. Okay? And then similarly, if you're on this quadrant, where you get more benefit, but it costs more. Okay? So, again, those are the uh, more difficult areas. So let's say now you have the standard treatment that's uh, $10 a person, and the, and the cure rate is 50%. And then you have a new treatment that costs $12. It's more expensive, right? But it's more effective. And the, and the company tells you that makes a product that says, look at the cure rate. It's 55%. You get 110 cures out of 200. So where are you from here on this quadrant? Are you here, 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 or there? Okay, so let's, let's make this A. Who thinks this is A? Okay, how about B over here? Okay, so cost more, benefit more, right? C, how about D? Is everybody confident that it's B? Is anybody not clear that it's B? Yeah? Okay, good, because you're wrong. <laughs> okay, and, and this is why we're going over this. Okay, so if you look at this, everybody thinks it's A. That's how most doctors think about this, because it costs more, but we get more benefit. But there's an issue that's particularly applicable to the mission field, which is a fixed budget effect. What does that mean? So let's just say somebody donated $2,400 to say, you know what? I want your mission to save these kids with this problem. Okay? So here's the money. Okay? So, but let's say there are 400 potential patients because every mission hospital has more patients with that problem than you can possibly treat. Uh, okay? So let's say there are 400 patients. So look at the standard treatment. If you had 400 patients, okay, but you have $2,400 and it costs $10 a person, how many patients would you be able to treat? So $2,400, $10, so 240 people. Uh, Sorry for the math, okay? But you can treat about 240 people. How many people would be cured? 120, okay? Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. But how many people can you treat with this new treatment that's, that's, uh, that's $12? Only 200, and how many will be cured? 110, okay? So you actually get less benefit, and you spend more money. It's somewhat counterintuitive, but these are like important principles for you to consider, and the correct answer is actually you're going into this direction, okay? You actually get less benefit 
by implementing that new strategy or that new drug. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so that's uh, maybe a semester's worth of evidence-based medicine <laughs> that I'm just cramming in 15 minutes, and I apologize if it's too, too uh, quick. Uh, so, so, so how does that apply to what we're trying to do? Well, if you put something on the evidence spectrum, you have strong evidence on that side, on, on to your left, and then strong, strongly against it, and then things that are either more cost-effective or less cost-effective. So let's put this on here, okay? Is that something that you would want to do? because evidence is strong and it's fairly cost-effective, okay? So I would say, yeah, let's, let's do that. How about something on this? This is evidence is strongly against. Would you do that? So you probably wouldn't want to do that, okay? So there is the green versus the red. Okay, you do or you don't, okay? And what if you're down here? That is, evidence could be anywhere, but it's so expensive for your situation that it's not particularly cost-effective, then you might not want to do that either. Does that make sense? What about right here, where evidence is in between? Okay? It's, it's mixed. It could be effective. It, it may not be effective, but it's very cheap. Okay? Well, it's somewhat up to your discretion, but this is something you might say, you know what, cost is so cheap until better evidence comes out, you may want to implement this. Okay? But that's somewhat up to you. And then, of course, there is that usual gray area where you might consider it depending upon your your actual clinical situation. So what does that look like for ICU? If you look at that, here's a list of things uh, that where the evidence is fairly strong and is fairly cost-effective. Okay? So, uh, so there's a whole set of things that, that might fall into that category. And then there are things where the evidence may not be quite as robust, but it's so cheap. So what's an example of that one? The example of, uh, so we already talked about aspirin, for example, or low tidal volume for ARDS. But for, in this category, one, one thing that fits is the head of the bed elevation, okay? There's two major randomized controlled trials. One trial says, let's put the head of the bed up, let's put the head of the bed flat, and that study showed what? That there was a lower risk of pneumonia if you put the head of the bed up. How much does it cost to put the head of the bed up? Not a whole lot. Makes sense to do it. Is there more than one study that says that? Unfortunately, there's a study that says it doesn't work, okay? So it's up to your discretion, but... But, you know, but I think it makes sense to do it anyway because it's fairly inexpensive, okay? If that costs $1,000, I, I would probably not do that, right? Okay? So, um, so there are things like that. And then there's other things that maybe uh, uh, that you might not want to do. So, so, for example, despite what the WHO guidelines say about uh, giving Tamiflu for influenza, if you look at the Cochrane Review, the data is actually quite bad. If there's no evidence it actually works, Okay? So, uh, so you wouldn't want to do that. And there's a lot of other standard things that, that we do in the U.S., by the way, which the evidence is actually against, that we shouldn't be doing it, but we do it in the U.S. anyway. Okay? So if, if you've taken care of a GI bleeder with varices, I'm sure many of you have started patients on octreotide. If you look at the Cochrane Review for the current evidence, it suggests it actually does very little, if anything. It just costs money. Okay? So, um, so very surprising things. Okay? So there are things that are maybe good evidence for doing, but uh, might not fit your mission hospital context. Again, like thrombolysis for MIs and strokes and, and so forth. And then there are things that we do at Kajabi. Uh, one example is non-invasive ventilation uh, for patients with COPD or uh, immunosuppressed patients. Okay? So, so you can sort of put this on there. And depending upon your local context, you may shift this up and down, but that's the basic framework. Okay? So... Um, 
maybe, I can, maybe I can pause here and just see if there's any questions about some of the things that we flew through. Does that make sense? Or Okay. All right. So let me now bring that back to what we are doing at Kajabi. And uh, actually, Dr. Lesford and, and uh, actually Matt has been there as well. Uh, so you guys can uh, pipe in. These are just some of the things that uh, I thought w- was worth discussing. So one of the goals that we have there is to train national doctors. Okay, so we, like many other hospitals, it's a training institution. So just to give you a flavor for people who might want to come in uh, and, uh, and to serve there, either on a short-term or long-term basis, we have a schedule that's pretty much like any other teaching hospital. We have lectures, we have rounds, um, and so forth. And our emphasis is on teaching. So uh, as far as the critical care, uh, we have a separate curriculum for ICU education. So these are various trainees who rotate through the hospital. And... Um, we uh, are putting them through a series of special lectures just for the ICU. And then, of course, they get their hands-on learning through their clinical rotations. Um, and we have placed now all of the curriculum that they get online. And it's on Google Drive. Why is it on Google Drive? Because it's free. That's pretty cost-effective, right? Okay. <laughs> so, so it's on there. So these are the reading assignments for various chapters on fluids. There's advanced fluids, vasoactive agents, and so forth that they are asked to read and uh, also to um, uh, absorb and hopefully practice. Okay. So here's an example of, of, uh, of their reading assignment on, looks like on, on sepsis and SIRS. Okay. Um, and then daily, uh, around 11.15 or so, we spend about an hour and a half going over these lectures as the residents uh, and interns rotate through uh, the ICU. We also, uh, in addition to that, we also try to give some practical lessons at the bedside. So that's actually me with my little iPad, okay? And we are recording short little clippets of some lessons that hopefully they will remember and that they can, they can view back. So one example is on this day, we were talking about a four-year-old girl who actually came from Madagascar with a lot, after a lot of hoopla in trying to get her to our hospital because our hospital has a neurosurgeon. Uh, and so this, this, this child had some type of brain tumor that, was, that could have been operated upon. Um, and so what happened there was... Um, Patient came. The operation was a success, uh, um, but within, I believe, about 12 hours or so, the child actually arrested on the ventilator and died. And so we're going over, I mean, what went wrong there because we want to obviously avoid those things. And, um, and so I'm actually recording a, uh, a, a lesson by drawing it on there, and it goes on the web. And uh, we hope to have a series of these that people can tap into even, uh, even in our absence. Um, the other uh, lesson is the severe limitations of Western knowledge. As you know, most of the research, even if it was good research, okay, unlike maybe 90% of what's out there, um, it doesn't necessarily apply to Africa or many other, other things. So, um, um, so one, um, one example is um, I got a call uh, when I was on call uh, about a year ago, and one of the interns called me and said, Dr. Lee, we have somebody who I think is in complete heart block. Okay? And so my response was, well, we don't put in pacemakers. We don't have a cardiologist. So probably the best advice is to 
put him uh, on an ambulance and, and send him to Nairobi, which is about 90 minutes or, or so away. But the practical answer, of course, is that most of them cannot afford any of that care, so they're going to probably stay and probably die. So I even told them that I'm not sure it's even worth putting them in the ICU because there's nothing we can do about it if they are in complete heart block. Okay? So then I come to rounds the next morning, and, and of course, the patient is indeed in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in complete heart block. So I spent my usual time with my tablet explaining what complete heart block is and, and, then, and then, you know, like going through first-degree heart block, second-degree heart block, et cetera. Uh, and then they were amazed by the brilliant lecture, and they were all mesmerized, taking notes, and, then, and, and everything else. Well, about two hours later, that same intern comes back up to me kind of sheepishly, and, and, then, and she looks very embarrassed, but she's pointing out her old chart. And it turns out that this lady has been in complete heart block for three years. <laughs> okay? So it turns out everything I knew about complete heart block and everything I told them is completely wrong. Okay? She obviously didn't die, and I'm not sure how she's doing now. Okay? So, so there are a lot of things that I assume because of my, uh, of my practice in the U.S. Uh, you know, may or may not be valid because here in the U.S., what would have happened if somebody was in complete heart block? They would have gotten a pacemaker, so we never get to see the natural history of what happens to these things. Now, I'm not saying don't put in pacemakers. <laughs> that's not my point. But the point is there are a lot of things that we assume we know, but it may not actually be true in, uh, in this context. Okay? So uh, same thing is true for sepsis. You know, the, the current uh, recommendation by all of the international bodies is to resuscitate quickly with boluses of fluids. And that's what we do, and that makes a lot of sense. But, of course... There's the FEAST trial, which came out of uh, uh, Kenya and Tanzania in kids, which actually showed that boluses of fluid may actually increase mortality. Okay? Now, there are many ways to dissect those studies and to argue about it that's beyond the scope of this particular talk, but it again suggests that the, that the research that was done in a single center in Detroit with inadequate study design okay, may not be as valid as this huge multicenter study in Africa, uh, and, and, and maybe that may be more relevant. We don't know. So there's now three more randomized controlled trials that are being done currently, so it will hopefully be more definitively answered. And I'm not sure which side it's going to end up on. It's a big topic, but the point, again, is that we have limited knowledge about what to do in the emissions context. Okay? Um, Apache score. Okay? Prognosis is very important in the ICU. I'm sure you've heard of the MPMs and the Apache scores. And, and things like that. I don't know if you know, but the, all of those models have been developed where? In the developing world where they have ventilators and dialysis machines and everything else. And it's not clear that any of these things are really applicable to uh, the African context. So, uh, so there is a Kenyan internist uh, there that, that works with Dr. Lesford and I, and, uh, and she's trying to develop not the Apache index, but the Maasai index, okay, <laughs> to make it more relevant for uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And Maasai index stands for Mortality uh, Assessment in Sub-Saharan Africa Index, okay? So, um, so that's what we're trying to do because we need to figure out what is actually applicable to us as opposed to simply borrowing from them, okay? The other big lesson for us is, is, is uh, um, how many of you are doctors, by the way? Most of you, okay? So, so the other big lesson for, for us, and, and something that, that I try to remind myself is, is, is that we're, we're not necessarily the best people, 
Okay? And that is the limitations of physicians. And it's reality. It's humbling, but it's reality. And so um, do physicians make the best decision is something that you want to think about as you, as you prepare for the mission field. Here's two quick studies, one in the New England Journal and one in Critical Care Medicine. And these are simply comparisons of doctors making decisions versus non-doctors. The first study is doctors versus respiratory therapists about an, about an ICU topic. There's doctors versus nurses. Okay? And in these studies, okay, if you had uh, doctors compared to respiratory therapists, doctors did twice as worse in terms of getting complications and spending time on the ventilator. And if you had nurses versus doctors, once again, doctors did about twice as bad. Okay? And, and, and this may be a surprise to you, but this kind of literature exists everywhere. Okay? Almost always, if you compare a doctor to anybody who's non-doctor, it could be a nurse, it could be a respiratory therapist, it could be a computer, it could be an algorithm, usually doctors lose. Okay? So it's a very humbling thing, thing to remind ourselves that although we want to educate doctors, Actually, the, the, the emphasis needs to be on everybody else, especially the nurses. We don't have respiratory therapists in Kenya, but, uh, but, but, the, but the nurses do that role. Okay? Um, so, so, by the way, if you know anybody who's a respiratory therapist, I mean, I mean that's something that would be very, very valuable to the uh, mission field. That may not be apparent to you. Okay? This is a very uh, famous uh, study. Uh, anybody know who that is, by the way? Okay? This is Dr. Semmelweis, okay, who showed that if you wash your hands, what happens? You save lives, okay? So although he celebrated now on stamps and coins, when he came up with this concept, of course, he was uh, labeled a heretic and, and a nut, and so he supposedly died in an insane asylum after his study. Uh, that you can see is very convincing. So, 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 so how are we doing now, okay? So this is a study in 2000. Uh, that study, by the way, was was in the mid-1800s, okay? So over 150 years old. How are we doing with hand washing? So this is a study that was published in 2000, and it showed at best 22% of the doctors washing their hands, okay? And then what happens? You educate them, right? You teach them, and you apply social pressure. What's the social pressure? They actually tell the patients to say, please tell your doctor, or, or, or please ask your doctor, did you wash your hands? Okay? So do you think it worked? No. Okay? That, that was the effect. Okay? Then they made sure that alcohol was everywhere, so you couldn't walk two feet without running into an alcohol, so that you're, you're basically reminded constantly, and they were able to improve this. Okay? But still look at half the doctors being non, non-compliant. Okay? So um, when, when the doctors were asked, okay, how often do you wash your hands? <laughs> 73%. When a nurse was spying on them, 9%. Okay? So not only are doctors incompetent, we're, we're also liars, it turns out. Okay? So, so there are limits to what physicians can do. There's also limits to what education does. And I think for something like this is a good example. ICU is a complex organization. What we need is a change in culture. Okay? And that's hard to do if you fly in for a day and you give a lecture and you, and you run out. Okay? I, think, I think there are a lot of good that you can do uh, on the shorter trips, but I think a lot of what, what needs to happen is somebody who is going to invest in relationships with people and to change the culture, and that, that, that takes a long time, and you have to have a lot of patience. Okay? All right. Uh, the other challenge is unreliable equipment. Okay? 
So um, I think I told you, uh, as far as mechanical ventilator, I, I often ask my students uh, in, uh, in D.C., if there's one thing you need to remember about ARDS is try to be careful about the title volume. Why? Because the best um, available evidence that says we can save lives is to use a lower tidal volume. Okay? Well, we try to apply that in Africa, and if you notice, there is the tidal volume inspired. This is the tidal volume expired. Okay? This would be theoretically lethal. Okay? But we're not sure which machine is accurate. And by the way, I mean, I mean, which reading is accurate? It's the same patient, same machine. And same thing is true for pressure. Same thing is true for FiO2. The FiO2 will be set at 85%. And then this thing on the monitor, it will read 14%, which I don't think is possible, even at Kajabi, because it's, it's 8,000 feet high. And then what makes me really happy sometimes is the FiO2 will be set at 100, and this thing will read 115%. It's like, wow, <laughs> we're really good here. Okay? So, so, so we have huge challenges with proper equipment that, that works. Okay? So, so here, actually, I think one of our biggest needs, and I think Dr. Lesford can uh, 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 chime in, is that we actually need people who know, who know about machines. Most doctors don't know anything about these things, okay? Even though I'm an intensivist, you know what? I, I mean, number one, I've never seen this machine before. And then, and then number two, I have no idea what actually happens inside, okay? I'm just used to writing orders or have my residents write the orders, okay? So I, I, I don't even know what happens inside there. But, that, but those are the things that can actually be uh, life-saving. That four-year-old girl from Madagascar who died, she died from, uh, uh, from this machine not functioning properly, Okay? And it's, it, it's a tragedy for a surgeon and the churches that raise money to do all of that stuff, to have, to have everything go well, and then to have an equipment failure uh, be the problem and the cause of her death. So I think this is something that I learned from Dr. Lesford, I believe, which is, you know, you guys know your ABCs for, like, for CPR and all that, uh, and D is for defibrillation, right? And E is for, it's for equipment failure, okay? And it's a very common problem in the ICU, uh, Okay. Same thing is true for labs, by the way. Okay. We, got, we got cardiac troponins about, a, about two years ago or so. I was so excited. I can finally show that this person is having an MI and, and so forth. And then, we, and then we got our first patient with chest pain. And then I sent off the troponin. I said, see, it's elevated. This person is having an MI. We need to start their aspirin. We need to give them their, their heparin, et cetera. And then it turns out that everybody's troponin was elevated, right? <laughs> so, so, again, very unreliable labs and very frustrating uh, very challenging. Um, one of the other frustrations for, I think, for many of us is, the, is, the, is, is brain drain, okay? Um, um, and I think this is a picture from 2006 when I was visiting the ICU. Um, and I think uh, this is Blanche, uh, but everybody else has moved on uh, from there. And even Blanche is no longer working in the ICU. So this is a picture from, I think, this spring. And I'm not sure how many people are going to be left. Uh, but there are many reasons for that. Obviously, a lot of people opt to come to the U.S. or U.K. for training. Some people go to Nairobi because there's more money there. This is a mission hospital that pays a lot less money than, than, than some of the um, for-profit hospitals in Nairobi. Um, so, um, so we're trying to train people, but I'm not sure how many people actually stay. I think the problem is even more acute for the nursing staff. Uh, so it's a huge problem. Uh, I'm not sure there's great solutions other than a lot of prayer and, uh, and just persistence and patience. Okay, so I think I'm going to pause here. Uh,
time is. Is that, is that correct time? Okay, ten more minutes? Okay. Oh, good. Okay. This is the first time I actually ever finished anything on time. I think Steve will know that. Okay. So I'll take some questions or comments. Okay. Yeah, back there. Good question. So we have, um, so, so for those of you who don't know, uh, there's a ventilator where you stick a tube into the, into trachea, but then there is a non-invasive ventilation where you use a face mask. Ideas are very similar. You're, you're still pushing uh, air in through positive pressure, but you use a mask instead of an endotracheal tube. And in some settings like COPD and, and possibly in, uh, in immunosuppressed patients like HIV, it, it may be mortality reducing. So it's something that's important to have. But there's two generations of these non-invasive machines. There's a first generation and the second generation. And the major difference that's, that's a practical significant is the second generation allows you to use wall oxygen, which means you can give 100% oxygen or very high oxygen. The first generation just sucks air from, I mean, yeah, sucks air from, like from the room, which means the, the oxygen is basically 21%. Well, who needs BiPAP, well, often it's people who are hypoxic, okay? So the first generation is good, but not great because of that reason. It doesn't give much oxygen. And guess what kind we have? So we have the first generation, yeah? So, so hopefully we could upgrade that in the future, but that's what we currently have. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we have, actually, I think I showed you the picture. We have one respiratory isolation room. And Steve, you have to tell me, does that actually work? <laughs> so it looks good, okay, but I don't think it does anything. Yeah. Yeah. Tina. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, actually, you mean a negative pressure ventilator. Okay, we do not have that available. I'm not sure anybody in Kenya has that. Okay. Yeah. Tina. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, uh, as of uh, March like 14th this year, we got our Sanasite machine. So, so we have, which is a portable ultrasound machine about the size of a laptop. And um, uh, actually, the money was raised from the U.S. and, and Australia, Hong Kong. So you know, many generous people and churches donated to that. Uh, and uh, uh, actually, had the pleasure of walking through customs with it, hoping they won't ask me what it is. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it's been in, in there in, in Kajabi for about six, seven months now. And what we have is we have a series of training lectures 
uh, that, 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 that everybody who's, who's going to use it is required to view and to understand. Uh, and then we've set it up so that people can upload their images uh, of the ultrasound images of the heart or, or whatever. And we have a radiologist from Mayo Clinic and a cardiologist from the University of Minnesota who is overreading those uh, until we get all much better at it. Uh, and then there is a team of people that are supposed to be coming in. In fact, I think Ron Johansson, who's a cardiologist, is there, I think even now, actually, uh, there. And, and he's bringing you know, his expertise to do more local training. So if you know cardiologists or uh, radiologists who could help us in that, in that that's uh, be very, very helpful. Um, without ABG capabilities, what sorts of things are you using to, to tweak mint studying? It's hard, actually. I mean, I mean, I mean, like I said, the current machines that we're hoping to upgrade, uh, you know, you know, within a year or sooner, hopefully. But right now, it's those same ventilators that I showed you. And so, so normally you would look at oxygen saturations, and that seems to work okay for the oxygen side. We don't have a blood gas, um, and even the even the pressures and volumes that you get, as you saw, is very unreliable. So we're often looking at the chest to make sure that it's rising. So it's very very basic kind of assessment. Um, the, we, we've talked about using end tidal CO2 monitoring, uh, which anesthesia uh, will use often. But for us, remember uh, the, the data for end tidal CO2 is pretty reliable in people with healthy lungs. So in the operating room where you're, where you're working on the abdomen, there's pretty good correlation between the blood gas CO2 and the end tidal CO2. Problem is, in a lot of the patients in the ICU, they're in the ICU because their lungs are abnormal, and there's a huge discrepancy. Uh, in between the two. So we don't really have a good substitute for that right now. Uh, there is a blood gas machine that we've been trying to acquire, and I think it was being tried, and it's kind of coming in and out. I don't know what the current status is, but uh, it wasn't functional when I was, when I was there this summer. Yeah. If I could just make one comment, because many of you uh, will be in the seat of uh, And I would just echo that because uh, 
and I think this is where it's helpful to have a team of people thinking about this because you know sometimes I'm in a certain frame of mind and I, I you know I think we should have you know you know like you know like uh, ECMO machines and things like that and 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 that's where you got to kind of step back and and think about what the true value is and think about consequences that you don't necessarily think on the surface you know so even even like sodium test I think is like a dollar or something like that is that right so so. And so even like small tests that we just take for granted here can be very expensive if you if you add them up for uh, a patient in Kenya or in other parts of Africa. Yes. What is the data here? I see the cost. Who pays for it? Who decides? Yeah. Who goes in? Or does it kind of pay my savings? Who can't afford this? Who won't back out? Yeah. So um, I think Dr. Letchford, he was the medical director of Kadabi Hospital, so he could probably answer that better. And by the way, John Spriegel is also uh, has an ICU in. Henwick, so maybe maybe you guys can probably answer that better than I can. It was somewhere between uh, initially it was about forty or fifty dollars. Nobody got charged for it uh, because of our billing That's, how, that's why, how we got our machine, I believe. Uh, it was actually done through somebody else, not me directly, but I, I believe that, that's, that, that was a program. It's, it's a Sonosite program. It's called Sound so, so Sonosite was just bought out by Fuji, so I'm not sure if the same thing continues, but, uh, but hopefully they will. Well, good question. So it depends on whether you're going to ask a cardiologist, for example. They will say it'll take years or whatever. But, I mean, 
but our goals are very, very limited. This is like recognizing the heart that's moving like this or going like this. Normal, I mean, you know, it's very crude, yeah. It's very crude, okay? It's a pericardial effusion like this big, you know? But, uh, so it's things like that. So, so for that level, uh, I, I think actually personally that what we have is working reasonably well. So we have, for example, a clinical officer who would be equivalent to like a nurse practitioner, for example, in the States, no prior ultrasound echo training at all, went through the four lectures that we had set up over there for training and then had them demonstrate some competence to me directly uh, for like one hour uh, and then subsequently just start recording their images and then show me just the images now because I know that they can actually acquire the images and then occasionally uh, shoot some of those off to the cardiologist in the U.S., for example. I think he's actually pretty good. So that's that just the heart, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so for in the ICU, we use it for, you know, like the lungs and for like the sliding lung sign and the portal effusions and looking at kidneys for hydronephrosis. And uh, actually, we do a lot of DVTs now before I left because uh, uh, we actually found that maybe in some cases, it might be better for you to do it rather than ask a tech to do it. Uh, so, so we're... we're I wouldn't say we're like anywhere near what a radiologist certainly or or a cardiologist, but we're, I think we're starting to be able to use it reasonably effectively. I still think we're making mistakes, which is why we want these experts to come out and to correct us, and we have uh, a big need for that. But I think we are making strides. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we just got it in March. Yeah, we, we just got it in March, and that's a great question. It hasn't broken down yet, at, at least as far as I know. <laughs> so, so, but we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll have to face that. Uh, but the Sonosite, uh, even though it's a, it's a, it's a, it was at a discounted uh, price for the nonprofit group, they, they give a five-year uh, warranty. So, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure the day the Sonosite breaks down is going to happen, but right now it's fairly new, and they are supposed to guarantee for five years. Yeah. How do you deal with, uh, like, end-of-life issues, people you don't think are going to do well, people you think will be on the ventilator forever and no one yeah. will ever be able to pay for it? You know, that's probably one of the hardest questions uh, to address here, and, I, and again, there are, there are a lot of other people here with experience besides myself, but, but I actually find it kind of puzzling uh, uh, there because I think from an American perspective, uh, you know, I think most people in this room would be on the conservative end of the, uh, you know, of the social and political viewpoints, uh, you know, including uh, end-of-life care issues. Uh, but often on, in, at the hospital, we're sort of, we're um, more, likely to consider cost issues just because of, of the pragmatic side, and we end up actually not putting people on the ventilator uh, when in the U.S. we definitely would have, you know. And, and it's a difficult moral dilemma, and sometimes I lose sleep over it, you know. So, so we hardly trick anybody, by the way, because of the, just the implications of what that means, and no one can afford that. Uh, but, um, but I think there was one, like a, I don't know, like, but a 14-year-old girl who had some spinal cord surgery for a TB that didn't go well and was on the ventilator, she was totally awake, and it was really a morally difficult thing to do what to do, you know, what to do for her. Uh, but those things come up on a regular basis. So I don't have any answers other than it's a difficult decision, and, uh, and it takes a lot of wisdom and prayer to sort of settle you know, what the right thing is. 
Yeah, so, so we have a five-bed ICU and 12 step-down beds, so as, a, as an example. And, uh, and the policy at Kajabi is we don't put a sixth patient there just because of the nursing and, and, and all the care issues. So it's, it's a rigid five-bed ICU. So we are frequently faced with five people already there, and somebody else who is often more viable shows up. And we have to literally decide who we're going to extubate or... Or, or let die. It's something that obviously you wouldn't face uh, in the U.S., but it's a, it's a uh, not an infrequent problem. So, so these things are very relevant questions. And again, I don't have great answers other than, you know, we need you to come and build more ICUs or something. But that's probably not always the right answer either. You know, so. Uh, well, I mean, I would say that telemedicine or like, or, like, or like consultations from somebody in the U.S., for example, it's a very valuable part, but I wouldn't say it's a dominant part because it's just not very practical to go through all those steps for every single patient. So I think it happens for very difficult situations and happens certainly with some regularity. We find it very helpful, but it's not a big part of what we do, I would say. Okay, okay so I'm happy to take questions up front if you have, but uh, that's up to